So the unusual time in our country just gets more unusual. Last night, a person I respect greatly uh, put on uh, the internet, said every preacher tomorrow in America, especially the pastor predominantly white churches, should change their sermons and preach about what's, what's going on. And I wrote to him and I said, look, you're my hero, uh, but I'm going to preach on exactly what I had planned, though some of the application changes. Uh, because moral authority is with God's word. It's not what I think or you think or anyone else thinks. Uh, and when we talk about hope and we talk about justice and things like that, we have to look at a biblical definition of, of what those things are. Uh, so we'll come to that in, in, in a few minutes. Many of us watched the memorial service for Robbie Zacharias on Friday. And uh, it was kind of a high point before many low points over the the next couple of days. Robbie Zacharias uh, passed away 12 days ago at the age of 74. How many here were helped by his ministry? Oh, okay, at least half. Uh, I was. And uh, I want you to know that, that in, in a real way, he, he played a part with our church uh, it, in a very vital ministry. Let me explain. Back in, in 2013, I was asked by uh, Greg Thompson to teach uh, nine international students at First Presbyterian Day School. Uh, and the idea was the, the students, most of them come from atheistic or at least completely secular backgrounds. They have no knowledge of the Bible. They have no knowledge of Christianity. And to put them into Bible classes at FPD said they're going to be lost right off right off the bat. They won't understand what's being talked about. So would you teach them the basics of the Christian faith? So I was privileged to teach 49 lessons over a period of a year and did that twice. Um, I taught them an introduction to the Christian faith. And in God's providence, right when I was beginning that, Robbie Zacharias International Ministries began an online community, an online academy, uh, which you can now is expanded with many different courses and electives that you can take. And so I had signed up for what they call their core curriculum, their core course, their foundational course. And it was there I was introduced to Vince Vitale, Michael Ramston, who's the, the head now of Robbie Zacharias International Ministries, Amy Orr Ewing, whose husband is an Anglican pastor in England, uh, John Lennox, who studied under C.S. Lewis, and, and others as they gave these lectures uh, on this online class. I had not experienced such a stimulating environment since seminary. And so I incorporated much of what I heard into the 49 lessons that I taught the students. And during that time or soon afterwards, several of those students express faith in Christ, that they had come to trust him as their savior. One was baptized here at First Presbyterian Church. Another young woman who now, I guess, probably just graduated from college, she went to college, like many of these students, to study business and to go back home and to serve with the family business, or should I say run the family business. And she changed her major to education, saying that she now wanted to teach teach others so that she could help students come to understand about Christ even as she had. One wrote to me saying his favorite course in college is New Testament Greek. 
So from the human standpoint, God was pleased to use several of us, this church, and Robbie Zacharias as tools for evangelism. Robbie Zacharias had a prophetic voice. I don't mean in the biblical sense of prophecy from foretelling the, the future, but from being a proclaimer of truth. And Isaiah was the same. Isaiah's ministry was during a very critical period. It was in the latter part of the 8th century B.C., and it was in the land of Israel, and the king, a, a good king named Uzziah, had just died. And under Uzziah, the nation had enjoyed 50 years of peace, and all that would disappear shortly later. And so Isaiah is a prophet in the king's court. He's calling people to God, and, and this chapter focuses on that. I'd like to read more than what is printed there. You've got, you've got verses 6 to 9, but I want to begin reading in verse 1, and then, then we'll, we'll come to those other, other verses. Hear these words from perhaps the best-known chapter out of the 66 chapters of Isaiah. He begins with, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And then coming to verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." So ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let's pray together. Father, give us understanding now. Guard us from distraction in these moments together. We need your perspective in confusing times. In Christ's name, amen. This is a gracious invitation. The invitation is to come. Come to the waters. And there are two types of people who are invited. He says, all who thirst. Those who are empty and in need. All of us have a thirst in our hearts, like the woman at the well that Jesus spoke with. And he promised to give her living water, and that whoever drank of this living water would never thirst again. Maybe we're dissatisfied. All that's needed to come is a desire for what is given. The other type of person is the unsatisfied. They have food. They have money that they're spending, and yet here in Isaiah they're not satisfied. Today it may be a person who's different, what I mean. They have a different job. They move to a different city. They have a different house. Maybe they have a different spouse. They have a new grill. They have a new diet. They have a new look. But if everything gets old 
And if we're honest, there's a longing which has not been satisfied. So what is offered? I read it to you in verse 1. He says, wine and milk. He's speaking of God himself. Only he can satisfy, as Christ said to the woman at the well. In 1965, a team of researchers developed a beverage for the athletes at the University of Florida. And the idea was to replenish the uh, carbohydrates that the uh, athletes had burned up during their exercise. Of course, it was Gatorade. Originally, if you, for those of us that were around at that time, it was kind of a, a lemon-lime taste that you wouldn't say it tasted good, but it, it looked better than it tasted. And now, 50 years later, there's a whole plethora of thirst quenchers and with all sorts of flashy packaging. And now the top 10 flavors for Gatorade are lemon-lime, orange, citrus cooler, fruit punch, tangerine, cool blue, mango extremo, lemonade, rainberry, and glacier freeze, which is starting to sound pretty good at the moment. Anyway, these flashy packages compared to dull, boring water. Water doesn't look flashy. It doesn't look appealing there on the shelf, despite despite the packaging and how they'll try and make it look that way. But when you're really thirsty, what do you need? What do you want? What satisfies you? Water. Plain, simple, boring, common, clear water. Only water ultimately satisfies. And that's what God says about himself. Are you lacking satisfaction? Are you thirsty? Come to me. He calls himself wine and water. Well, what should we do with the invitation? The passage you have beginning in verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord. To seek the Lord means to call upon him. In the Old Testament, to seek the Lord meant you went up to the temple. You went up to the tabernacle. Before that, you offered sacrifices, or they were offered on your behalf. But now it means, and when we come to the New Testament, it means to draw near God. To call upon him. That's what we're told to do in the Bible. Call upon the Lord. You and I do that every day. You, you call a friend on the phone. You call your children. You, you call 911. You, you call and you might use words like, Oh God, help me. God, if you are really there, show me. God, I need you. Come. Help me. Save me. Forgive me. Make me new. Father, I need your wisdom. I need your guidance. Anyone can do this. A child can do this. So we're to seek him. How? First is a priority. In other words, it is primary. It's not secondary. First thing in the morning. Last thing at night. The dominant thought throughout the day. That our plans and decisions revolve around seeking God and calling on him. But we're also to do so with urgency. And this is what's most important. If you've ever been in an urgent situation... And you had to act immediately. There was not time to discuss. There was not time to, uh, to wait and procrastinate. The situation demanded immediate action. Like an athlete, a basketball player, in the closing seconds of a game that's tied. There must be immediate action. Someone in your house is choking. There's the immediate action. Twice I have given our son the Heimlich maneuver. It works. 
But there was no time to think and to talk and say, oh, well, look, he's getting bluer by the second. No, it demanded immediate action. That's an urgent situation. In an urgent situation, everything else becomes secondary. I have an acquaintance friend, I've not seen him in many years, named Larry. And Larry, uh, when he was a teenager, uh, a young teenager, he was, his father was a woodworker as a hobby, and they were in the wood shop, and his father was showing him how to use a saw, and in the process, the dad cut off one of his own, the end of his own finger. And his dad, there's blood everywhere. His dad's in great pain. Larry, I think, was 15. He didn't even have a driver's license. He gets his father in the car, then takes off for the hospital. He said his dad's in pain, and in the process of driving to the hospital faster than he should have, he ran a man off the road. And the man is laying on the horn in anger. And he said, I really felt bad about it. I was sorry I ran him off the road, but the, the situation demanded I get there, so I didn't stop. And I didn't go back. Why? Because it demanded immediate action. And that's what Isaiah is saying. Seek the Lord. Do it as a priority. Do it with urgency. Why? Why is it urgent? Why can't we just say, well, I'll wait. I'll wait until I'm very old, and I know I'm going to die in a certain amount of time, and then I'll turn to the Lord. Well, the first reason not to do that is God is not always accessible. You say, what? He's not always accessible. In verse 6, it says, Seek him while he may be found. He's not like a pet that you whistle for. Come here, boy. And God comes, or a servant waiting in the wings. He's found when he permits himself to be found. And the second reason is we're not always disposed or inclined toward him. I was with a group doing evangelism in Panama City years ago, and it was spring break. And uh, got in a conversation with some guys, and we're talking about Christ. And one of the guys said, this is what I want. I, I want to trust Christ. He said, would you like to do that now? And he said, now? I just got here. I'm looking forward to what's going to happen this week. He says to do it because we're not always disposed or inclined toward him. Let me tell you who Isaiah is writing to. He's writing to Jerusalem, and he's prophesying about the future, about what would happen to God's people. And Isaiah foresaw a time in the future when having been captive in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon for 50 years... Now, that had not happened yet, but he's seeing that, Isaiah is, that after that happened, Cyrus, the Persian king, would allow, in one of the great changes in history, he overcomes the Babylonian empire, and he allows, he gives permission to the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And Isaiah is saying, when Cyrus... He's looking ahead and saying, when Cyrus allows you to do that, that is when you must seek God. And you must seek him immediately and with priority and with urgency. That's the ancient meaning. The present meaning in 2020 is that when the Spirit of God moves, now is the time to seek God in your life. Well, what is the evidence of this? And it comes in verse 7. You've got it before you. And that is repentance. Repentance. To forsake his way. Let me read you the verse. It 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. That's describing repentance. That's the word for that. Repentance, the Greek word is metanoeo. Meta meaning change. And noeo comes from the word to think. It is a change in your thinking. It is a transformation. A change so great that it changes your mindset. It's not in addition to something. You must leave something behind to get there. If you said today, well, we're going to drive, I want to go to Savannah, then you have to leave Macon to get to Savannah. You say, well, I don't want to do that. I want to stay in Macon and I want to go to Savannah. I'm sorry, you can't do that. You have to leave Macon to get to Savannah. And you say, well, I'm not going to Savannah then. That's right. You cannot be in both places at once. With repentance, we have to leave We have to forsake our way to pursue him. Have you repented? Are there areas in your life where you need to repent? Repentance from every form of racism and treating others as anything less than God's image bears. Did you see the cleanup efforts yesterday in Minneapolis? Did you see where the church people came together and were cleaning up? So many, not all of them were church people, but a lot of churches were organized to clean up so many of the buildings that had been destroyed. <coughs> Repentance from living for our own personal peace and affluence. Repentance from eating a struggle-free life. Repentance from ignoring God's word and prayer and supportive fellowship with other believers. Repentance from being apathetic toward God. I think as we watch so much of this uh, uh, on television and, and hear so much since the death of George Floyd who was, he really was a fascinating guy if you read about him Christianity Today had a long article two days ago and the ministry George Floyd had in Houston to inner city kids and he'd gone to Minneapolis to do the same thing on a temporary basis before going back to Houston but I think those of us uh, I know I grew up in, in a home that um, my father didn't tolerate any kind of disparaging speech toward uh, other races. Uh, He despised racism. I didn't grow up in a home where that was uh, propagated at all. And, uh, but my understanding of racism is strictly individual. Racism would be hating a person because of their skin color, whatever color that is, or or another nationality. I think most of us as Christians if we're sensitive to the Spirit and God's Word, no, that's, that's wrong. Even as the passage from Colossians that, that Justin uh, quoted earlier in the prayer that made Paul was clear, Jew, Gentile, Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, male, female, that the kingdom of God is for all. There are no distinctions there. Uh, and, and yet what we're hearing is a different definition of racism that it's opportunities that are not given to others that some of us enjoy and and don't even think about because we have them uh, by the color of our skin in in many situations. So it's a bigger definition uh, that some of us are not used to thinking about uh, or trying to understand. So at noon, I'm going up to a a worship service in front of the courthouse uh, or in front of City Hall with a lot of African-American pastors, and I'm just trying to understand uh, a lot uh, of what, what is being said. Well, back to the passage. There's an amazing promise here for those who accept his invitation in verse 7. 
He offers compassion, and he will abundantly pardon. You may think you're too sinful or too far gone or it's too late, and yet God promises. Micah chapter 7 says, Who is God like? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant. You do not stay angry, but delight to show mercy. God delights to show mercy. He delights to, to pardon. He rejoices to pardon. We may think, well, I can't go and ask for forgiveness. It's like the Lord will be saying, oh, no, you're back again. I'm tired of hearing the same confession. No, he delights. He rejoices to pardon, it says. And maybe God knew we would have a difficult under time understanding this. And so in verse 9, printed there before you, he says, my level of forgiveness is not your level of forgiveness. So he gives an analogy. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts and my ways higher than your ways. When it comes to this forgiveness that we have a hard time understanding. Now I heard this, someone read it in a science journal that if this piece of paper, the thickness of this piece of paper could represent the distance from the earth to the sun, 93 million miles, this thickness, that the distance to the closest star would be a stack of paper 71 feet high. Now, I read yesterday on Wikipedia that our steeple is 187 feet high. So I'm not exactly sure where 71 feet would be, but maybe you can kind of in your mind think about 35% up or 40%. That it would be a stack of paper that high, each piece of paper representing the distance to the sun, and that would be the distance to the closest star. And to the end of the Milky Way, it would take a stack of paper this thick, 310 miles high. Now, I don't know how high high is, but that is way up there. And God says the mercy of God has no limits. It has no limits. You don't have it in front of you, but verse 12 says, You shall go out in joy and be led in peace. As I was thinking about this yesterday, I thought, boy, if there's ever a time that people may say we want peace and we want joy, it would be now. We need to call on the Lord for that. He promises to give it. We need it personally. We need it nationally. And that was what Ravi Zacharias found when he was 17 years old. Ravi was born in Madras, India, ironically, which is where history tells us the disciple doubting Thomas was buried. Thomas was the missionary to India and was killed there. So Ravi was born in that city but he grew up in the city of Delhi. His family was Anglican, but he described himself as a skeptic. And then at age 17, he tried to commit suicide by taking poison. Obviously, he didn't die, and he was in a local hospital, and there a Christian gave a Bible to him and his mother, and he asked, he told his mother to read it to him. And she turned to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and she read the portion that contained the words that Jesus spoke to Thomas. And it was John 14, 19. And it touched him as the defining paradigm of his life. He said, the passage says, because I live, you also will live. 
This may be my only hope, he thought, Robbie thought. A new way of life. Life is defined by the author of life. And he committed his life to Christ and even in that hospital bed prayed, Jesus, if you are the one who gives life as it is meant to be, I want it. Please get me out of this hospital bed and I will promise that I will leave no stone unturned in my pursuit of truth. Let's bow together and seek God in prayer. Oh God, we need you. You invite us to call upon you. We delude ourselves when we think that we are self-sufficient. We need you for the very air that we're breathing right now. We need you to keep our hearts beating. We need you to guide our lives. We need you to redeem us. We need you to take us to heaven when we leave this life. We need you to provide for us, even as you provide for the birds of the air. You, we need you to clothe us. As a nation, we need you. We've not seen true revival that we read about in history. We, we've not seen in our lifetimes multitudes uh, dramatically converted and to where time stands still as people worship you for hours and it seems like seconds, so we read. Where the topic of conversation everywhere is the kingdom of God. We would ask that you might do that, that you might, in your mercy and in your compassion, since you are slow to anger and you delight to pardon, we ask that you might do that here in our nation and other places around the world. Not because we deserve it. We've trampled on your promises in many ways. We've taken your privileges and used those for great immorality. We've not respected life. We've not respected other people. We've lived for our own personal peace and affluence we pray that you might have mercy on us uh, for our own sakes we pray for our church that you would make us a vibrant living community of faith not around a building of which we're grateful for this building but it is you at work in our lives bless people here of all ages especially the children that you would give them hearts for you and we thank you for our older people, many here that have walked with you for decades, they've been through trials that some of us had never imagined, and yet they, your spirit is bearing testimony that they are trophies of your grace. Bless them. Guide us. Show us what our responsibility is during this time. We pray for justice, true justice, um, and we also pray for your mercy. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.